And we're back. Welcome to the Bricks and Mortar podcast. This is episode number 13. The Bricks and Mortar podcast, that's a podcast about property. If you've got an interest in property, if you're buying, selling, renting or investing, then I'm sure in the next 20 or 30 minutes we'll have something that floats your boat and lights your candle. What we're going to do in this show, this week's show rather, is we are going to bust another property myth Property myth we're going to bust is, do you need a mortgage in order to put an offer in for a property? We'll talk a wee bit about stamp duty or LBTT, as it's called now, and, and really focus in on the 3% surcharge and tell you a wee bit more about that. We'll talk about the rhythm of three. Do you know what the rhythm of three is? I'll tell you a wee bit more about that. We might have a chat about an app and a book that I'm reading, but let's get started. Busy at work this week and uh, trying to get into work pretty early and what I do is I walk through the Kelvin Grove Park. Those of you who know Glasgow will know Kelvin Grove Park and a couple of episodes uh, ago I spoke about the uh, Indian gentleman who was practising his discus throwing. Well he's back I'm pleased to say. It's always funny when you are walking to work and I guess if you walk to work then you will probably see exactly the same people and sometimes you are walking past them and and they know who you are and you know who they are uh, and you give them a sort of a nod of of recognition. Um, There was certainly no nod of recognition with um, the, the discus throwing man uh, you will recall last time that I took a, a video and posted that on, on Facebook because I just thought the whole thing was completely bizarre. This this 50, 55-year-old guy was, was practising his discus in the middle of a park, uh, almost trying to take some of the passers-by out. So I'm going back into work last week, and there he is. Um, he doesn't have his discus. No, um, he's got a hammer. Not a a claw hammer, you you understand, but one of these hammers which in essence is a a ball, a metal ball on the end of a chain. Uh, And there he was, he was practising his hammer throwing. I've just... I, I was speechless as I was walking to work. So again, I stopped the bike. I was going to take a photograph or a video of him. And he flat refused to, to do any of his hammer throwing. So I, I don't know whether or not he became a bit coy about the whole thing or, or whether he was embarrassed. Um, it was a bit disappointing, I have to say, because I was really keen to see what his technique was like. So that's him, he's done his discus and he's done his hammer throwing. Um, I'm just waiting for the javelin to come out. I do think that the next time that he is doing some sporting endeavour on Kelvin Grove Park, I'm going to go up and have a chat with him. So you never know, we might get him on the podcast and uh, see what he's all about. So I think we should maybe get on with the show. Uh, Before I do that, give you just a wee bit update as to where we're at with the political machinations as far as uh, Britain is concerned. Uh, Farage has fallen in his sword and uh, he's buggered off. Uh, Gove has uh, been stabbed in the back by the rest of the uh, 1922 committee, so he's no longer in the running for the Conservatives. Uh, We've got... 
Theresa May, who some are calling the, the next Margaret Thatcher, um, she's looking as if she's going to get the gig for the Conservatives. And uh, poor old Corbyn seems to be hanging on, um, I have to say, of all the political parties. Uh, it just seems that the, the snippies are the ones that are, are, are showing the most credibility. So we'll see where that all goes. More worryingly, I guess, for the markets is that uh, three large commercial property funds uh, closed their doors and refused to allow any exit out of the property fund. So that's a real concern for the markets and it is going to be interesting in the weeks and months ahead as to, to see what happens. Because if there is... Uh, removal of funds from these commercial property funds, then then that gives the wrong sentiment to the market and is of great concern, no doubt, to those who are uh, in that market. And I guess for everybody else, if there is no inward investment as far as commercial property is concerned, then that quite possibly will have an impact as far as the housing market is concerned. Uh, I guess that if I was an estate agent in London, I would be deeply concerned at the amount of companies who appear now to be moving out of the square mile and setting up in mainland Europe. A lot of things to digest, uh, but this week what we're going to do is we're going to talk about stamp duty and that's what I'm going to talk about now. Okay, let's talk about stamp duty or LBTT as it's now called. What I want to do is to first of all tell you a wee bit about the history of stamp duty or LBTT, then tell you about how it was calculated and the actual processes of paying the stamp duty. We'll then talk about the new system being a, a slab system and then talk about the surcharge on second properties. So let's start with the tax. The tax originally was a tax on property. You've always had a situation where you didn't have to pay the tax as long as your property was under the nil rate band. That has fluctuated between £30,000, £60,000. At some stages it was up to £250,000. The reason why they had done that, the government had decided that they wanted to try and encourage first-time buyers. And so they said that if you bought a property under £250,000, then you didn't have to pay any stamp duty at all. Where we currently sit is that if you have a property and the property is worth under £145,000, then you do not have to pay any tax stamp duty or LBTT on that. So the old system was pretty was very straightforward to calculate. You had various bandings of property and you had various bandings of percentages. You worked out where your property fitted in the bandings and then what you did was you calculated whether it was 1%, whether or not it was 3% or whether or not it was 5%. Pretty easy to do. Now, back in the day, and certainly when I started, what you had to do was you ended up having to send your 
document that proved your ownership, which we've spoken about that being the disposition, you ended up having to send that through to the stamp office in Edinburgh and they would then stamp the document with a nice red stamp confirming how much stamp duty you paid and then that would come back to you and then at that stage you would then register your title deeds. There was always the concern that you forgot about the disposition uh, or the disposition got lost. Uh, thankfully, about I think 10-15 years ago, they decided to introduce a different system, brought in the, the SDLT and uh, latterly the LBTT, and this is now based upon a form that you have to complete. It's got about 50 or 60 questions, and it is uh, for the government's benefit so that they can get further information for from everybody who is buying properties within Scotland you fill out or your solicitor will fill out the form and the stamp duty will be paid you have to pay the uh, the tax within 30 days if you don't pay the tax within 30 days you get an automatic fine of 100 pounds and then there is uh, interest that will accrue on that so you need to be aware that if your property is in excess of these days £145,000, and this is in 2016, if your property is worth in excess of £145,000, then you will have to pay some sort of LBTT or tax. So the system previously was relatively straightforward. As I say, you identified where your property fitted within the threshold and then you calculated it out at 3%. That was deemed to be somewhat unfair because if your property was just a couple of pounds in excess of the stamp duty threshold, uh, then you had to pay the tax on the full purchase price of the next banding. So that was deemed to be unfair and given the dues, the Scottish National Party came out with a slab system. And so what happens now is that you will still not have to pay stamp duty LBTT under £145,000. But what will happen is that they have got various slabs so that the, the next slab in the system is based upon uh, property that is above £145,000 and £250,000. And then the next uh, criteria is £250,000 and £325,000. And then it goes up to £325,000 and £750,000 and then £750,000 and above. So now what you do is, for example, if your property is worth £375,000, what you do is that you get your first £145,000 free. You then have to pay 2% on the tranche that is between £145,000 and £250,000. You then pay 5% on the tranche between £250,000 and £325,000. And then the final tranche, which is um, £375,000, you would do a calculation on the next tranche. Um, and the next tranche is 
between £325,000 and £750,000, you would pay 10%. So what you would do is you would calculate that your purchase price is £375,000. So you would then pay 50, uh, you would pay 10% on the £50,000, which was the difference between the £375,000 and the £325,000. So it's slightly more complicated uh, and thankfully the good people at the revenue Scottish Revenue and the uh, the land registry, what you can do is you can just type in the numbers. Uh, there's a great website if you go on to Revenue Scotland and type in LBTT calculator, then they will do all the heavy lifting there for you. Interestingly, there is a difference between the English SDLT system and the Scottish LBTT system. And the tipping point as far as the differences between England and Scotland is round about £300,000. So you end up paying more tax in Scotland if you're buying a property that's in excess of round about £300,000. So before I started the show, I put in a figure of £375,000. Now, I appreciate that £375,000 for buying a property is a big chunk of change um, and you're going to get a good quality property. But if you look at properties, um, you know, three, four bedroom properties, uh, your, your, your middle um, tranche of properties in Scotland, good quality family homes, £375,000. This may astonish you. In Scotland, you end up having to pay in LBTT £10,850. £10,850. So that's over and above your, all your other costs. In England, if you were to buy the same property, okay, £375,000. In Scotland, you're paying £10,850. In England, you are only paying £8,750 as far as SDLT stamp duty is concerned. So that is a difference of £2,100. So there's all sort of political um, issues, I think, here. Um, but certainly if you're paying over £300,000 for a property in Scotland, you will end up paying more tax than you would do uh, if you were living down south. That doesn't seem right to me, um, but it is the system and that's what we've got to work with. The next thing that we've got to work with is the 3% surcharge. Now, the 3% surcharge is now something that's been brought in by the governments of Scotland and England. And in essence, what this means is that if you are buying a second property, you will have to pay 3% additional stamp duty on your purchase price. So what that means is that you will still have to pay the LBTT or the stamp duty if your property is in excess of £145,000. But over and on top of that, what you will have to pay is a surcharge of 3%. And really what the government are wanting to say here is that 
they are almost wanting to stop, I think, or put it, make it more difficult, people buying second properties. And this goes back to the fact that what they're trying to do is to ensure that there are more properties that come onto the market for first-time buyers. But the issues that people are now facing is that there are so many circumstances where clients are coming across unintended consequences which then lead them to have to pay the 3% stamp duty. Now, these are people who, due to circumstances, have acquired a second property. They've got no interest in wanting to become the next Gerald Ratner and have a raft of buy-to-let properties. These are people who are having to pay the 3% stamp duty because of circumstances. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go through various circumstances where you're going to have to pay the SDLT or the LBTT surcharge. Obviously, if you're adding a new buy-to-let property to your existing portfolio, well, you're going to have to pay your 3% stamp duty. So you need to factor that in. If, however, you're buying a first property, which will be your main residence, but you already own an inherited property that's let out, then you're going to have to pay your 3% stamp duty. So that, to me, seems awfully unfair. You know, one of your parents has died, or an uncle or aunt has died, they've left you a property, you've inherited that, you've not taken any steps to acquire that property, but then when you want to buy another uh, a property to live in, you're then going to have to pay your 3% surcharge. It doesn't make any sense. If you're buying a new property, but the sale of your currently, current property falls through, then you end up having to pay the, the surcharge. So you could be in a situation where you're doing a, a buy and, and sell. So you're selling your main residential property, you're buying a new residential property. There's some cock up, which means that for whatever reason, out with your control, the purchaser of your property fails to complete the deal. You're contracted into buying your property. You go ahead with buying your property. You end up having to pay the 3% surcharge. That seems inherently wrong. And what about the situation where you're buying your first home, but due to affordability constraints, you end up having to get your mum or dad on the mortgage but they already own a, a, another property. As the parent already owns another property, the higher rate will apply. There's one caveat to that, and what I would say is that if the parent is only on the mortgage as a guarantor, then the higher rate doesn't apply. But again, to me, that just sounds absolutely nuts. What about the situation where you're purchasing a new property in the UK, but you already own a property abroad, which you intend to keep. Again, your 3% stamp duty is a 3% LBTT surcharge is going to apply. There's an anomaly here insofar as if you are buying a property abroad, okay, um, then you don't have to pay the 3% stamp duty. So if you have a property and then you buy another property abroad, you don't have to pay the 3% stamp duty. But if you have a property abroad and you want to then buy a property in this country, 
then you have to pay the 3% stamp duty. It just smacks of, of the politicians saying, listen, let's make sure, how do we get more properties onto the market? I tell you what we'll do, we'll put a 3% stamp duty on so that we dampen down the market for buy-to-let. And I just don't know whether or not they've even bothered to consider some of these consequences. I mean, some of these consequences just seem so obvious. You know, why haven't they put in special rules of or caveats? What about you, you've got a situation where you're purchasing your new home and you're turning your existing property into a buy-to-let. So as you are not selling your existing main residence when you're buying another one, the higher rate will apply. So you're going to have to pay 3% stamp duty. So listen, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, let's take the situation where you've acquired two properties. Um, we've got a situation where we're buying and selling a property and there's been a cock up by the purchasers so that there's been a delay in your sale, but you've ended up going ahead with your purchase because you're contracted into doing that. You end up having to pay the 3% surcharge. But what the government are saying is that once you sell your second property, okay, then you'll get the surcharge back. So what you've got to do is you've got to it's a cash flow issue. You've got to find the 3% stamp duty and then you'll get it paid back to you once you've sold your second property. Tell me who's got 3%. You know, clients that I come across who are buying and selling, um, if you end up having to say to them, you know what, you're going to have to find 3%. Yes, you'll get it back as soon as you sell your own property, but you're going to have to to find 3%, you know, I, I just think that's going to be an enormous problem uh, if you face an issue which is nothing to do with your, yourself. You know, the, the, the purchases of your property have screwed up and you're ending up having to carry the can. I'm wondering if you could potentially claim that from the, the purchasers of your property. You would have to look to see if you had put something in the contract to that extent. There's one other caveat and condition is that you need to make sure you've got a, there is a time scale by which you need to sell your second property. And um, that was uh, originally 18 months. There's some talk of it being three years. I'm unclear as to whether or not it's 18 months or, or three years, but you do have to sell your property within a period of time. Otherwise, you don't get your 3% stamp duty back. Now, I've spoken there about the doom and gloom scenario where you're having to pay your 3%. Let's talk about four particular cases where you're not going to have to pay your 3% surcharge. First one here is you're selling your main residence to purchase a new main residence, but you own several other buy-to-let properties. Um, the Government has said, well, in these circumstances, the higher rate does not apply. The existing investment properties in the background do not make the higher rate applicable, regardless of how many your client already owns. So that's quite good. If you're unmarried and you currently live in a property um, that your partner solely owns, but you want to purchase your own buy-to-let property, again, as the 
couple is not married, the clients aren't married, then the higher rate doesn't apply if the purchase will be the only property owned by your client. Take the situation where you're living in rented accommodation, okay, and you own one buy-to-let property and then you want to sell that and then buy another one. Again, the stamp duty, the LBTT surcharge does not apply in these circumstances. They have also taken into account a marital split, okay, and so the final case uh, where the SDLT surcharge does not apply is where you've got somebody separated from a spouse who owns their former matrimonial home but they now wish to purchase their own property. So married couples are treated as one unit for tax purposes uh, and the higher rate normally applies if either party owns a property. However, if your client is living separately from their spouse in these circumstances that are likely to become permanent, then the higher rate does not apply. So that takes you through the 3% surcharge. I'm gonna wind up here as far as LBTT and stamp duty is concerned. So we've touched on the tax, we've touched on when it's gonna be paid, we've, we've talked to you a little bit about the processes and the history behind the, the, the stamp duty and LBTT. It's now a slab system. On one hand, it seems to be fairer because you're, you're not paying in the event that you go slightly over one of the tax brackets, that's great. But deep down, you know what? Why are we in Scotland having to pay more LBTT, more tax, than our counterparts in, in England. It just, that to me, sticks in the craw uh, and just doesn't inherently feel correct. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't want to get me started on the 3% surcharge because the, the poor old buy-to-let investor is just getting, you know, crucified as far as your 3% stamp duty, there's issues with regards to uh, the tax treatment on the, the payment of, of interest. Um, there just seems to be one thing after another as far as the, the battering of the, the poor old, uh, old buy-to-let investor on something that, that's related to the buy-to-let investor. I came across a situation here last week um, and this is becoming even more uh, problematic for the buy-to-let buy investor uh, is the issue of stress testing as far as the lenders are concerned. What you now need to make sure and do, and I might do a, a show on this purely about buy-to-let and investing, there's a stress test now so that the lender, you have to make sure that there is sufficient rent that's coming through to pay the mortgage. And you're not gonna now be able to get a mortgage unless you qualify through this stress test. So what the lenders are saying is that the rental that's coming through not only has to cover the monthly outgoings as far as the mortgage is concerned, but it has to be 125% in excess of that at, a, at an arbitrary rate which is set by 
every bank and building society. Some banks and building societies are wanting you to have a coverage of 145% at a rate of 5.5%. And that, for a lot of investors, skews the figures. I appreciate that, it, that, um, that rents are going up, um, but that's another qualification that buy-to-let investors have to take into account. I'm going to get off my high horse now um, and uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about busting another myth. Another myth, shall we? Uh, This myth is all about making an offer for a property where you don't have your offer of loan. Many clients have come to me and asked me the question, can you make an offer on a property where you don't have your finances in place and the simple answer to that is yes what you do is you make the offer conditional upon having your mortgage in place now the estate agents are likely to ask you the question have you got an offer in principle i.e have you done the background work in order to get the mortgage Again, there's not really any necessity to do that because what you would do is you would hide behind the clause that the whole contract is conditional upon getting your mortgage in place. Now, back in the day, and I was probably talking about five, ten years ago, nobody ever used to put their offer in conditional upon a mortgage because it was felt that it was in somehow detrimental to your offer and where you were competing with other offers that didn't have uh, that conditionality, then your offer may be deemed to be poorer than the offer that is unconditional. It was a bit of a fallacy, I have to say, because what ended up happening was that nobody ever ended up concluding missives until they had their mortgage in place. And so what happened about five, ten years ago was that there was a complete sea change in the way that solicitors approached this issue. And now everybody is absolutely transparent. And that's pretty much been down to the Law Society saying that we now as solicitors have to be transparent as far as the offer process is concerned. So when clients ask me, is our offer going to be deemed to be detrimental because we're making it conditional upon a mortgage, I would say absolutely not. Now, some clients come to me and they say, well, I've got an offer in principle. I've got an AIP, an acceptance in principle. I don't need to make my offer conditional upon a mortgage. I have to say to you that that's that that's daft you still need to put in your offer conditional upon getting your offer finalised because an offer in principle, really all you've done with that is A, you're able to afford the mortgage and B, they've done some of the background checks as far as your credit score is concerned. It hasn't gone through full underwriting and the, serv- the the bank has not had sight of the survey. So there can be quite a slip between cup and lip as far as your mortgage application is concerned. So I always say to my clients just to make sure that even if they have got an offer in principle, make sure that the actual offer that you make to buy the property is 
conditional upon getting your mortgage. So that's another myth busted. You can make an offer which is conditional upon mortgage and you can make an offer without necessarily having your finances in place. What I would say to you is get an offer in principle. That's probably the, the best thing to do because I do think that if you don't have an offer in principle and your solicitor is asked the question, then that may be detrimental. Offering in principle for a mortgage is pretty straightforward to get, so do get that. That's my advice. If you're listening to this, you probably are a fan of podcasts and no doubt have a stream of podcasts that you listen to. In this particular part of the show, what I want to tell you a wee bit more about is some of the podcasts I listen to, uh, an app that I've just downloaded and also a book that I'm currently reading. As far as apps are concerned, there's a cracking app if you are in the business community called Charlie App. And what this will do is that if you've got any meetings you download Charlie app and you put in the details of the person that you're going to meet and what that will do is it's got algorithms in the background that will drag various parts of social media where that person is connected to. They will put it all in a format and then email it to your app so that you can download the details of the person that you're going to meet so that you'll know a wee bit more about the company they work for, what they've posted on Twitter uh, and what they've got on Facebook. So uh, download that Charlie app is what it's called. I think you'll find that quite interesting. Podcast Rich Roll is uh, a great podcast uh, that I listen to. He's very keen on interviews. Most of his shows are taken up with interviewing guests. He, he, his big thing is is speaking to thought leaders and, and people who have really changed their lives for the better. The interviews are anywhere between 30 minutes and 45 minutes. He's a former lawyer. I think he said that he was a former alcoholic as well. He's into a bit of zen and some of the guests he have on are, are just, they'll, they'll blow your mind. They're just cracking interview so that's the rich roll podcast i'd recommend that uh, definitely i'm currently reading a book and the book is what everybody is saying it's a guy by the name of joe navarro and he's a former ex was a former fbi agent and really the book is all about reading people's non-verbal um movements and what he's saying is that uh, if you read the book, then what you'll be able to do by the end of it is what he says is speed read people. In essence, you're going to decode the sentiments and behaviours and uh, avoid the hidden pitfalls and look for deceptive behaviours. I've read about half the book and I have to say uh, that it, it's quite eye-opening taking what I've learned from this book and just looking at people and identifying what their non-verbal, uh, their non-verbal cues are. So you can get it on Amazon, as with all these things. Uh, it's what everybody is saying, and it's by a guy called Joe Navarro. So ha- do get that and have a read of that. So that's the Charlie app, the Rich Roll podcast, and what everybody is saying.
I said that I would speak to you about the rhythm of three and if you're in sales you'll probably know what the rhythm of three is and although you might want to just turn off if you're not in sales by and large if you're any any sort of business um, you'll always be looking for referrals and something that the rhythm of three can assist you with is getting more referrals. I've spent 20 odd years as a solicitor and obviously always on the lookout for referrals as a mortgage advisor and protection specialist. You know, that doesn't change. We're still always looking for referrals. And one of the best ways of achieving referrals is is clearly to strike up a relationship with somebody who is able to to pass you work. And when you meet that prospective client or person who's going to be referring your business, sometimes you go gung-ho and you end up telling them everything about everything as far as your business is concerned and what you can do. And sometimes what happens, in fact, is that you just confuse the prospect and they go away from the meeting thinking, well, what the heck am I able to assist him with? Because he told me so much. So really, the rhythm of three is all about just using three things. It's as simple as that. So, for example, if I'm speaking to a company that I'm wanting to try and obtain referrals from, what I'll say is that our strapline is something like mortgages made simple, no fuss, no hassle, no headaches. So that's three separate things that the person that I'm speaking to can take away, that we can organise mortgages, there'll be no fuss, there'll be no hassle and no headaches. By breaking down the information into bite-sized chunks, it makes it easier for the mind to remember information. It's, I guess it's a comp pression and pattern creation technique which allows our short-term memory to transfer information into our long-term memory without overwhelming itself. And three just happens to be the number that I found to be the most effective when talking to clients. I would say that if you're ever going to be sending referrals or testimonials or videos then you should always send three. Your clients are more likely to trust them. They will trust in the power of three, and so should you. What I would suggest is have a go at it, and delighted just to hear how you've got on. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up now. That's another show that's in the can. What I'd like you to do is to join the Facebook page. We've got a Facebook group called the Bricks and Mortar podcast. You can email me on jonathanwilliams at begleybrown.co.uk. Don't forget to link in with me on the LinkedIn. We're also on the Twitters. And finally, we've got the web, uh, the website where we do the weekly blogs. And you can subscribe to the website on www the Bricks and Mortar podcast. I'm just back from Park Run. It's Saturday morning and uh, we're going to be looking at the tennis tomorrow. Andy Murray is in the final of the men's tennis. He's going to be playing a Canadian 
um, by the way by the name of Ranich. Uh, Ranich is I think twenty four hasn't had any Grand Slam success and you've got to hope that Murray is a good bet to pick up his second Wimbledon title. So we'll be watching that tomorrow. Just back, as I say, from Park Run, Crack Tower 21.33 on the 5K, so pretty pleased with that, and met up with Marcus White, who's a, a pal of mine, a solicitor who works in Motherwell, and also caught up with with Julie who organises the park run there so I had a good chat with, with her talking of having a chat we've got some interviews lined up I'm going over to Nicola Estate Agents on Monday to speak with Daniel Cohen uh, he's one of the guys at Nicola Estate Agents and I think you'll enjoy his chat uh, he's at the start of his property journey I guess I acted for Daniel when he was buying his new property last year and he's one of the estate agents working out of Nicola Estate Agents. I think we'll also have a chat with Mark Taylor. Tay Letting is a company that he runs and again he's got a great story. I had a, a chat and a coffee with him over last week and I think he is keen to come on to the show. So I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, do get in touch uh, if you're wanting to come on to the show for an interview, I think next week we'll do an interview uh, and then the following two weeks what we'll try and do is get a couple of other interviews on because I'm off on holiday for two weeks. We're off to Crete, so really looking forward to that. Trying to drop some kgs, as I say, went out on the 5k this morning and we're going to see if we can strap on the shoes and, and start the running streak again. Managed to get, I think, seven days in a row, so I think we've got about 10 or 14 days to go before holiday and they're going to try and crack out some more running. So that's it. You've been listening to the Bricks and Mortar podcast. The Bricks and Mortar podcast, a sideways view on property.